Hey everyone, Sloan here. Um, Ashby and I realized while we were recording this episode that we didn't mention that we made a new website for the podcast until about minute 40. <laughs> um, and you should definitely listen that long. This is a great conversation. Um, but if by chance you happen to drop off, drop off um, please be aware of freemoneypodcast.com, which exists and is increasingly good. Um, right now, you can submit a question for the Dear Ashby segment of the show. Um, you can browse the curated collections covering ESG, innovation, and conversations with asset owners. And there are a few things on the blog that you might find fun as well, including a recent piece by me on something called a bank defalcation, which I will not explain here. I hope that's gotten you as excited about the Free Money Podcast as I am. And if you'd like to put that excitement somewhere particularly productive, um, consider leaving us a nice review in wherever you get your podcasts. Lastly, I just think I should mention how much we love hearing from people who listen to this show. Um, and if you have any thoughts whatsoever, please don't hesitate to reach out to us at freemoneypodcast at gmail.com. And now, enjoy this great conversation, honestly mind-blowing, with Ross Israel of QIC, where we talk infrastructure. Here comes the money! Here we go! Money talks! Here comes the money! Welcome to the Free Money Podcast, where we bring you the Brooklyn Bay Area consensus about institutional investing that you desperately crave. And this is the infrastructure episode. Oh, it, it's, I thought every week was the infrastructure episode. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, it, we do treat every week like it's both shark and infrastructure week. That's how we live our lives. <laughs> shark infested infrastructure. But so when spring is here, I don't know yep. if you, if, what is going on in the Brooklyn. Uh, oh, it's so good. It's so but, good. You know, it's like three, no, one third of America is now vaccinated. The yep. flowers are out. My kids, as of Monday, go back to five days of school, Whoa. public school. Yeah. Are the I parents going to get work done for that? I, I'm, my wife and I are just going to like parade around the house. It's going to be so pumped. Yeah, I mean, I, I do love my children, but for longtime <laughs> listeners they, who have met Henry and B on the program yep, yep. here, real heads uh, know. <laughs> yeah, the real free money fans know about Henry and B. They can be challenging for me to get work done, but it's all changing. Feels like uh, we've crossed into a new zone. Of yeah, the COVID I got I, I got my first shot on Monday um, and spent the next two days in bed. <laughs> <laughs> I hate but, to tell uh, you this. It's the second one. That's the bad one, Slug. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, it's literally so like say. we're just all punching ourselves in the face and like lying on the ground for a week, you know, for the greater good. And I'm yeah, perfectly I mean, happy the, to do that. Seriously, it is the greatest illness feeling you'll ever have. You're like, oh my God, those are the antibodies <laughs> kicking in. Yeah, you know, exactly. Feels like, oh, just just make me sicker than I can imagine. I feel terrible, but so good. Oh. I know, exactly. <laughs> Well, but so, it's a yeah, it's you a, go, you go. It's a crazy time to talk about infrastructure. Like I, right before this episode, I was like looking around for some stats and like, you know, America known for like the bridge collapse of I-35 in 2008 um, and for, you know, our zero miles of high speed, speed rail per capita. Uh, oh, interesting. You know, yeah. Like, oh. I mean, literally we have no high speed rail in this country at all. Um, the closest thing is the Acela, which runs from, uh, you know, Boston to Any <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anybody who's been on that is like, that's not high speed rail. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It goes, it, it like its average speed is 67 miles per hour. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think like the TJV in Europe was doing like, you know, four times that in the eighties. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's really sad. Like it's, <laughs> I mean, we lead the world, you know, um, and <laughs> I just don't know what to say other than that, except, I mean, we did No, but you were doing research. You, I oh, interrupted yeah. you. Yeah. We did, we did have testimony from a very nice man, I suspect, named Joseph Kyle, who works at the Congressional Budget Office on April 14th, who talked about, you know, this thing called the Highway Trust Fund, which exists. It almost um, sounds like a sovereign fund. It does. It sounds like some kind of, uh, like, you know, instrument that someone would build to invest in something strategic. Although in the U.S. we have these funds, like the Social Security Trust Fund, and it turns out it actually does nothing. Just invest in just invest in our, in our own debt. Yep, 
Yeah, that's, I mean, basically that's exactly what the highway trust fund does, um, except uh, it runs out of money every year to invest in our, in our highway debt. Um, well, maybe it's because it's earning 0% interest. We should look into that. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, and, and the thing is like the numbers here are just astronomical. Like Kyle also said, you know, if we wanted to fund, if we wanted to maintain current highway conditions in the U.S., just highways, we spend $55 right. billion every year for the next 10 years. Um, like if we wanted to fund all the projects that, you know, were kind of judged to be net positives, at least 71 billion a year for the next 10 years. Um, it's stunning. I mean, we, it's almost as if we need to look beyond government to some kind of large <laughs> investors that if want only there were <laughs> inflation protected cash flowing assets to meet a distant liability. If we can think of any of those, can anybody I, think of one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, oh, amazing. But well, people are investing news. in this. Yeah. Are you ready for some news? Speaking of those uh, mysterious funds that have long dated um, liabilities. <laughs> There was news out on how terribly our American public pension plans perform. According to new research, the 46 largest public pension plans in America uh, underperformed a passive benchmark by 1.52% each year for the last 12 years. Wow. And they underperformed 11 out of the last 12 years. And again, for those keeping score, a passive benchmark um, is nobody doing anything. <laughs> so the these plans um, did worse than nobody doing anything. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're net negative. And that's, you know, part of me, because I'm the eternal optimist, I was like, that's why Sloan, Sloan and I are doing this. You know, yeah. we're, we're here to improve these organizations, get them the resources they need. You yeah. Know? And it's like, you know, there is low hanging fruit. It's a, they're phenomenal in efficiencies, et cetera, you know, but like, Jesus, that is a hell of a track record. I know it's, it is. And the hope is that that kind of a stat triggers some form of Reevaluation of how they're doing all this, but my my guess is it won't. It's been released every it's, year for the last twelve years. Exactly, <laughs> every single year they release the same story, yeah. and people are like, "Eh, eh I can, um, but I can do better." We're very smart. Yeah, you like know? we're in the top quartile. Yeah, exactly. Um, next piece of news goes to this issue in terms of improving the. Um, the outcome of some of these, the performance of some of these plans. I think I mentioned in the last pod, the one where we had uh, Marcel on, that um, pension funds that pay their CIOs more outperform those that don't. I think that was yep. one of the things I said. And I think I mentioned the highest paying CIOs, if, if you're in like the top quartile, you get 25 to 47 basis points annually. So like that's pretty exciting. Well, the news today that jives with that is that CalPERS made double the CIO's I saw salary. That. I saw that. To what, like $300,000? You know, I, it, would, <laughs> it might have been. But I have to tell you, the, 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 like I went and snooped around the documents, and I think the CIO could, in theory, make almost $3 bucks a year. Solid comp. You're getting near the amount of money that you would have to pay me to deal with the ridiculousness of running that organization and and mostly like the ridiculousness of dealing with Congress and, you know, journalists and all the other stuff that ultimately comes after that CIO. But that's real money. I think you, you'll get some people thinking to themselves, yeah, I'll go to Sacramento, live in California, never fundraise again, I mean, you know. Per- Personally, the only the, the way that I would take that job is if I was allowed to do the ridiculous thing ridiculously, you know, so like hire like a, a court jester and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, you'd <laughs> want a CEO, chief entertainment officer. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. As part of that uh, C-suite. Probably um, elevate snacks to the uh, to the board level. You need a snack officer. <laughs> snack, uh, snack, snack to be yeah. a CSO. <laughs> yes. Snack. Oh, is that sales? No, that's no, snacks. No. It's quite important to us here. Uh, <laughs> all right, last bit of news. So I've been studying and tracking this massive uh, sovereign wealth fund in in uh, Norway for a long time. In fact, I wrote a couple of papers about that fund around 2010. 
And I can tell you that it was largely passive and it had made the decision not to do a lot of direct deals. And then about six years ago, they decided to dabble in real estate. And we've all been sitting here waiting for this 1.4 billion, no, sorry, trillion, $1.4 trillion sovereign fund to start investing in infrastructure. It's long dated. They've got all this capital. They own 1% of the global stock markets. When are they going to diversify into infrastructure? Well, I have the answer. And it was last week. Nice. They finally, you know, have started to do direct infrastructure. And even more exciting, NBIM, as they call it, um, Norge Bank Investment Management, with my Norwegian accent. Just, <laughs> that was we, right on. Yeah, we just lost a few listeners on that yeah, exactly. one. <laughs> There's like, someone named Ben. Well, this is ridiculous. <laughs> Sorry, that, so and I think so you bad. just rocked the Swedish accent right there, Sloan. <laughs> yeah. So now we've lost the Swedes. Oh, man. Anyway, uh, two offshore wind farms, 1.4 billion. You know, pretty exciting, actually, because I think when a, when a plan like that decides to start investing in something, it comes immediately with scale, right? Yeah. Like we were talking, you were talking at the top of the show, where are we going to find 55 billion? Well, like Norway, yeah. how's that for one? Like if they're going to do this for real and put 5% of their capital into infrastructure, there's 50 billion or more. Oh yeah. Wait, yeah. That's a great point. I mean, like, I, I think it's just, you know, simplifying for them to write big checks, you know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. So they're going to need to do it. So we got to talk to somebody about infrastructure and infrastructure investment. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, it's funny, like I, I, when the topic of investing in infrastructure came up, it's, it's such a weird blurring of context because there's like the government context and then there's like, you know, the private commercial context, like, and in the government context, your tax base grows if the area grows and like, you know, you're totally fine building a highway and not necessarily monetizing it. Right. Um, you know, but there's totally other ways to do that by investing exactly. in, like, I, I'm pretty sure, like, the infrastructure asset class is, like, literally everything. Yeah, I think, like, uh, <laughs> I mean, I feel like I saw some of these memes this week of, like, people being, like, you know, things are infrastructure. It was, like, barbershops are infrastructure, and, <laughs> you know. Yeah, all, everything is infrastructure. Queer comedy clubs are infrastructure. Get behind it, guys, finally. You know, and the, the Biden administration recognizes that finally. Good. They're getting behind it. Um, I remember making the case that um, parking tickets were infrastructure to somebody. Um, mm. And I was like legitimately suggesting that like the parking, because of the way that, um, you know, there's all these like physical components of the meter made industry. Um, and, and people were like, well, if only we had more parking tickets in the city, we'd generate more revenue. And it was like, well, why don't you? And it's like, well, there's a lot of upfront costs to like getting these things in place anyway. Yeah. I mean, like and e even the, the people that I know who are like pretty hardcore police abolitionists are like, we got to keep, you know, parking, parking meters and parking taxes are, are around, you know, it's like a, a pretty core part of civic infrastructure, I think objectively. Exactly. On today's show, we are going to be interviewing Ross, Ross Israel, who has been yep. running infrastructure at QIC. Queensland Investment Corporation was the old name. Now they just go by QIC with a brand logo next to it. Mm. Um, you're not supposed to ask what the Q or the I or the C stands for, I don't believe. You're just supposed to go with it. But if you listen to the podcast, tell you know. <laughs> it's like QIC asset management. Don't ask what the Q or the I or the C stands for. Yeah, yeah, exactly. nope. <laughs> it's the same with BCI, by the way. Uh, yeah, I think BCI is just BCI. But a bunch um, of people walking around in vests, like, don't ask us what this stands for. Man. Oh, <laughs> you got to be in the club. Anyway, he has done some of the most sophisticated and interesting infrastructure transactions kind of in the world. Like he did this thing, Queensland Motorway, and it was this fascinating um, asset transfer into the pension fund. And so he's going to give us like the 411 on how to do um, infrastructure investments and what's, you know, what to make of all this stuff going on with our infrastructure deal. The whole theme of this podcast for us is approachable for young people to understand pensions and things like that. So that we had to go for that. And maybe you can just like give us a sense of like describing what QIC is. I know there was a time when it was Queensland Investment Corporation. It's now QIC. But so what is QIC and like 
how big is your team and what are you doing? And then let's jump into like the infrastructure space since it's so hot here in the US. So um, QIC was established because Australia brought in compulsory superannuation and the government funds realised they were going to be quite large and they needed a funds manager to, to actually take that investment forward to match assets to liabilities, in essence, in the pension fund. Over time, QIC has evolved to uh, validate its investment expertise by actually managing money outside of the government pools. And so we've added investors from insurance companies, sovereign wealth funds and other large pension funds. We're an institutional sort of manager. And we've gravitated to only asset classes where we've been able to differentiate an expertise. And so that is really dominated in the unlisted asset classes of real estate, infrastructure, private equity. We still run a liquid market strategy, but the other part of the business that's rather unique is that the defined benefit fund for the state's employees is internally managed within QIC. And so we sort of straddle a government interface with that as well as an institutional interface trying to find solutions for institutional clients across similar strategies that we ourselves hopefully have developed some differentiation in. And um, over time, certain asset classes have been outsourced because we haven't been able to create that differentiation. So listed equities is an example of that, Ash. Yeah. That's perfect. And, I, and I, I'll ask the first question here because it's the easiest. Um, and then I'll, ask, I'll let Sloan ask the hard ones. Because I, I think like your team in particular, for, for people like who are just learning that you can invest in this infrastructure stuff, like toll roads and ports. Like, Ross, you have like been the pioneer in this space. I've known you for probably a decade now. You've done some of the more fascinating transactions. Um, you know, Queensland Motorways jumps to mind. Like, maybe you can just give us a sense, like, what are you looking for when you're going to look for infrastructure to buy? Like, what are some of the characteristics you know, of these assets that make them fit into your bucket of infrastructure? And why are they appealing to QIC and a defined benefit pension plan? So we're trying to build a diversified portfolio across sector, geography, life cycle, which really has downside capital protection. So we really want to build resilient cash flows that are predictable for the investors who are matching long duration liabilities. And so the essence of the asset class is that long duration matching, as, as you know, Ash. And we have over time, you know, developed a team which is now 59 people um, managing circa 15 billion Australian dollars across 20 direct assets across six countries. And so our objective has really been to try and build uncorrelated return in and amongst those sectors and do so with a very strong thematic approach to the duration risks that lie in those sectors, particularly as we can point to two factors. Uh, Climate change is one, which is a a key one that has emerged, and technology (laughs) and technology (laughs) disruption. And so... uh, the evolution of these sectors, and when you and you when you call them out, it's a really broad universe, right? So transport, road, rail, airport, seaports, car parking, gas, electric, water, social infrastructure, and public-private partnerships. It, it, it gives us, you know, an enormous array of areas to put together a portfolio and create that diversification. And it's been, um, you know, a real privilege to have the opportunity to build the program, but also. It's been um, an exciting journey as we've seen sectors evolve over that period of time we've been going and some of those risks have elevated and some of them have have obviously reduced as some sectors become more investable and institutionalised. So, so like, I, I mean, the I, there are probably some people listening who aren't exactly sure what, like, matching assets and liabilities mean and I wonder if you could go into a little bit, like, how you're actually realising returns from these assets. Um, because you know they're they're like literally made of concrete, right? They're the de- they're about as as a liquid as the, as it gets pretty often. <laughs> yeah. So assets to liabilities. So liabilities, you know, the long term pension liabilities that are in the funds that are contributing capital to us, they're paying out in Australia after you're sixty five. So there's a forced aspect of compulsory super, which creates a duration to invest into for these super funds. And what they're trying to do is match long-duration assets that can deliver 
cash flows to meet those liabilities, which are happening at different times as their members age fine. So that's basically... That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So, so it's a natural outturn that they would be drawn to the asset class, I think. The, the way returns get delivered, look, it's fair to say it's not illiquid in the sense you can buy and sell unlisted assets, right? <laughs> there, are, there are processes, yeah. uh, there's, a, there's an what? array of advisors that will help you um, do that. And um, it, it's, it's becoming a much more mature environment with a deeper set of buyers and a sophistication that's developing and presenting the assets. So um, it, it is not unlike other unlisted asset classes like real estate and private equity, where there's a burgeoning trade of buy and sell of, of, of opportunities. But I think to the, to the core of your question is, like, how do you, if you were an owner, add value to the assets over time, right? And so, you know, there's a couple of buckets here. I, I think I mentioned one of the key risks, which is life cycle risk. Well, that, that presents the opportunity to expand assets and, and, and grow them. And so that is obviously an opportunity. And that is a leverage point in terms of risk return. So greenfield versus brownfield would be a concept that many of your listeners would probably know. So there's a build to core where you will um, get a return for creating the asset, going through the asset formation, and then having that operational. And one of the key leverage points in creating returns out of that is as an asset matures from an idea through to construction, through to operation, you can you can put debt finance against it over time and with stable essential service delivery, you get predictable cash flows that will attract a, high, a lower cost of capital than what was required when you started with the idea to build it. So th- that is a very leverageable opportunity to create um, returns. Um, the second is, you know, in these essential services, there's a regulatory environment that, that bounds what you can and cannot do in the asset. And so um, engaging and growing revenue with respect to evolving those rules and obviously adjusting them and working with stakeholders to do so is, is a really, you know, good opportunity to add value. Uh, the, the other piece is just management and, and we talk about OPEX and CAPEX. So, Capital expenditure, procuring and building things well will be an enduring area of opportunity. OPEX, really leveraging increasingly automation and technology to, to run the assets in a more efficient way. And, you know, with the optimization that can come from big data and AI, there's really great opportunities for infrastructure to become more efficient and, and be more optimised. And so we're in a space where a very key aspect is emerging, which is a movement from time-based maintenance to condition-based maintenance hmm. where technology allows us to assess the condition through sensors, drones, et cetera, which is going to make it much more efficient in terms of how that infrastructure gets maintained over a life cycle. Wow, that's so cool. So you're like flying drones around like, you know, say a highway or a pipeline or something and just like inspecting the, you know, the what's really happening on the ground. Yeah, so rail assets, um, transmission lines, distribution, electricity lines and, and pipelines, all these are now leveraging, you know, elements of sensors and drones to make more efficient in some very remote locations when something might need to be maintained and if there is an issue, what is the issue? So it's quite exciting in terms of some of these innovations that are emerging. Yeah, I know Ashley wants to ask a follow-up question about AI. <laughs> well, I was going to say, you mentioned AI, data, drones, like all this left is blockchain and we're done. We yeah, can just hang yeah up. exactly. Uh, but and I was almost thinking you might say blockchain when you were talking about liquidity and the ability to get you know some of these infrastructure assets tokenized. But look, we'll come back to that. I think what I was going to say was I, I was in um, a cohort in one of these incubators um, at Stanford Stardex for one of the other companies I did where we, we saw an amazing pitch of drones being used to clean off uh, the giant windmills, you know, to like go and wipe down these windmills that need maintenance. And so you're using drones to keep the infrastructure kind of um, running and, and effective. Uh, and, and I know you do a lot around like the next level technology. Like what are some of the like really interesting tech and data that you're seeing in and around this infrastructure um, asset class? Yeah, so that, that, that automation is real because it is actually better for the workplace in terms of the risk to employees in, in making some of these things occur in a different way. So um, 
drones, I can validate that's something we're looking at with wind farms we've, we've got in our portfolio. Um, in terms of ports, um, currently, you know, divers would go down and validate the integrity of, of key line infrastructure. Well, we're trying to automate that with um, submersible, you know, uh, vessels and also uh, automated technology such that, you know, we don't have to put a diver down and we can calibrate that over time with more regular optics. Uh, And so we're also um, empowering in the field uh, people with technology to more quickly evaluate and make decisions about maintenance. So uh, some of that is through observation tools that the person can have at the site and relay that situation back to a central engineering person so that they can assess and make the adjustments. We're putting sensors around the perimeter of assets uh, to increase the tech, you know, the the, the security of the facility, uh, but also uh, monitor things around the environment, air quality, noise to a higher level and in a more efficient manner so we can make the relevant adjustments for the regulatory environments that are put around assets. And then I think digital twinning is really interesting, mm. Ashby, as well, is, is in terms of expanding assets, being able to use a digital twin to assess how you would build that, when you would build that, wow. assessing also the nature of optionality to do it in different ways. That sort of thing is really enhancing how we expand assets and future-proof them. So <laughs> in, a, in a lot of ways, um, the data collection is a challenge and, and it's probably the opportunity for us to better understand how the consumer or customer in an infrastructure piece is using it and how we can adjust the settings real time to make their experience better and for it to be, I I, I suppose, much more productive as an asset and for our spend in maintaining it and growing it to be better future-proofing than it was in the past. That's so cool. That's so cool. I haven't heard digital twin before. I've never heard digital twin either. It's amazing. I was. I think this is going to be a little bit like Jeopardy, where you just gave the question and now I give you the answer, uh, <laughs> or the, no, you gave the answer and now I give you the question. That's it. Because because I think what we were trying to understand a little bit is like what's the difference between the government investing in infrastructure and a private investor, and now you've just like kind of rattled off twelve reasons as like why you want like really innovative partners in the kind of maintenance and operation of some of this infrastructure, because there's an incentive to bring lots of creative technology into these assets to make them function better. But let let me restate the question a little bit then, given what you've already said, which is, you know, government has a role still, private sector has a role. And one of the things invented really in Australia is this notion of, of recycling, where the governments take on the role of building the greenfield assets, then they sell it to folks like you, Ross, you t- sort of take over the maintenance and make sure it's innovative and humming. And then the, ad- the government takes that, the proceeds of the sale and builds more infrastructure. Um, and, and is that a fair way to characterize like the future of this where governments do the greenfield and investors take on the brownfield and maintenance? Or do you see it differently? It, it could be different for different economies and, and their tax base. Australia is um, the same size as the US in terms of the core mainland, but it only has 26 million people. So our tax base, the ability of us to fund large infrastructure with that type of industry and population is going to be fundamentally different to the US. So Mm. I think the recycling is is a reality partly of that, uh, that governments can raise capital um, and in Australia they will raise capital more efficiently for greenfield for nation building, but also to get infrastructure to a point where there's patronage or commercial revenue on it. And there's been, as a result of the depth of our capital market, a logical aspect with our superannuation industry as well to monetize that and recycle it and, and efficiently reinvest into key nation building projects and provide, I suppose, that first loss equity in the beginning to to also cut through the regulatory challenges in building infrastructure, which government is uniquely placed as to, to do. They can deal with the stakeholders in some ways with their 
legal powers to do things in a more efficient way. So in all of that, you can take away that the US is slightly different in a number of ways with respect to that. You've got a big capital market. Yeah. You've also uh, got different adjustments at state and federal level around approvals and there's an integration of different services as a result of that which sort of make recycling positive in certain jurisdictions and not positive in other jurisdictions. And, and so I think it's a really good model. I, 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 I do believe that there's a couple of principles that, that we could point to around, you know, privatising infrastructure that we've learned in Australia. One, you don't privatise it and the government doesn't lose control of it because it's done on a long-term lease which right. then has reversion. Secondly, the government's clear where that money is going when it does monetize an asset. It's going back into infrastructure. Thirdly, it doesn't lose control of the infrastructure or the consumer efficiency because it regulates and put a, puts a concession around the infrastructure so that it is ongoingly meeting the expectations that their obvious uh, citizen constituencies have voted them in for. And then the last point would be in the process of that monetization and recycling, they are fully embraced in a stakeholder consultation to understand what matters in terms of that infrastructure for productivity after their ownership, but for the future proofing of how it works to the benefit of that jurisdiction economically. Let's do that. That's a good idea. <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> you, you could be a uh, diplomat, Ross, with how kind you are describing the yeah. American infrastructure i mean i've heard others describe it as completely dysfunctional and you know any, anyway but very good but i'm curious to hear you talk about like this whole esg thing because like you know i i explain it to my partner like probably every other week and i'm pretty sure she's like kind of still a little bit sketchy on what it means for like for equities right um and you know in an asset class like infrastructure it's probably quite a complex consideration how do you approach it it is it is a really important piece because, as, as I said, one of the long-duration risks is climate change, which comes into the key aspect of the E. The social side of ESG and infrastructure is real because there's a strong need for stewardship in essential assets, so you do have the interface of a social licence to operate, and as a result of that, it becomes critical for success to be embracing of a stakeholder approach, not just a shareholder approach. And then in the respective governance piece, having regard to how certain sectors of infrastructure evolve, you've, you've got to be empathetic to sourcing capital efficiently, but also being able to make decisions with regulators and other overseers of these essential services such that you can continue to deliver a good service and meet the market because the one dimension that's really rapidly occurring in infrastructure is the customer is being much more empowered with information to make choices. And so the infrastructure is becoming decentralised and customer-led, which is a really important evolution that as an owner you need to be focused on. And so the capital, and Ashby's been a great proponent of this, is driving institutional priority to ESG outcomes, and that is cascading down into both industrial and other partners and is making um, a real difference in, in how businesses are having to address those ESG issues. And we know that we are reporting to investors on these points and they are elevating themselves at a regulatory and also institutional level to get capital and they're going to become more and more a centrepiece, we feel, of your success. Because what, what, what is empirical is if you do ESG well, you will make returns. It's, it's not a trade-off that, that is uh, a negative. And, and so I think we, we've seen that in, in the way our assets have, have evolved. And I suppose it comes back to embracing this long-duration mindset, which, which is very powerful for good outcomes, we feel, with pension funds and super funds owning these types of assets. I mean, one imagines though that like, you know, you've talked about a highway, you know, I've seen you talk about like a water company that you guys own. 
were there readily available ESG benchmarks and standard and like standard reporting templates that you could come across? Like, were you able to approach that um, with any kind of a kit or was it something you had to build yourself? So we've had to build it a little bit ourselves, but it's rapidly expanding with standards and there's a, an array of standards. That's probably the challenge. <laughs> the standards are evolving and we don't have... We need a standards of standards. Yeah, standards. Like, Non-standards of standards. <laughs> there's an opportunity. There's an opportunity. We, you know, we, if, if I, if, there's a slight analogy with like credit ratings, you know, with S&P and Moody's et al., like we, we, we don't have that maturity yet in this sustainability standard space. It's still evolving as to the nuances between assets in each subsector, whether it's ports or airports. And so this is a, you know, a really important area. It's going to actually evolve, I think, to a good place, but we're on a journey. And um, you've got to contribute if you're an investor, and we think it's important that investors all contribute to try and make those standards both practical and also robust for the future in a way that creates good outcomes. And, and, and we're on a journey, I think, Sloan. It's not done yet. Yeah, it's like, I mean, all the, every time anyone talks about this, it's the 10-year thing because uh, it just, you know, it's probably more like a lifetime thing, but it's weird to put that in a document. And so, <laughs> um, the, I wonder, like, you know, in terms of a journey, you're on a journey to reach net zero, um, you know, and that's something that people talk about in all kinds of different ways, like net zero by 2050, 2030, you know, 2025, you know, um, it, what does net zero mean to you? So I suppose, you know, just stepping back, I mean, net zero is really referring to scope one and scope two emissions, you know, for most people. So scope one, you know, covers direct emissions from an owned or controlled source. Scope two covers predominantly indirect emissions from the generation of purchased electricity, steam, heating, cooling, consumed by the reporting company. So I think when people talk about net zero emissions, we know that's the focus, one and two. Three includes all other indirect emissions that occur in companies' value chains. And, and that's, you know, a much further and, and tougher task for a business to cover. So we, we are focused on trying to get our businesses to net zero one, scope one and two by somewhere between 2030 and 2040. How are we doing that? We're creating baseline CO2 emission profiles for each asset. And then we're looking into potential reduction you know, initiatives, and they probably fall, in, fall into four categories, you know, energy efficiency, renewables, fuel switching, and then at, at, at the end, offsets. Now, offsets are not going to cover scope three. Uh, it, you know, the, the offsets will eventually, um, you know, they will increase in cost over time if, if there's not a long-term solution. So the, the, the longer-term position around being net zero in total is looking into industries where they're obviously got to decarbonise and they have headwinds with their current construct and structure. So aviation and shipping would be, you know, two of those. Um, and, you know, the gas industry and how it evolves is, is obviously another, you know, obvious example. And so um, over time there's going to be viable substitutes in how they operate and, and we're working in terms of long-term planning to try and, map those out and adjust the businesses and evolve them. And so the immediate, to draw all that together, the immediate net zero emission target is to get to scope one and two. And then as you go through that exercise, you're going to evolve a business to have a mindset to where you will be around scope three if, if you've got a long, you know, beyond your lifetime type focus. For some of us, we might be retired sitting in a rocking chair, <laughs> um, but but that will that will be for the successes, uh, you know, in my business. Probably, likely, they'll have to deal with that reorientation. But those industries will will evolve in themselves to, to decarbonize as they can over the intervening period. I would expect to twenty fifty. Yeah, so you'll have good air in your rocking chair. Good air, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or massage chair. I we or still say rocking chair, yeah. chair, but I, I feel like my parents they got a massage chair. So Could be a couch. who knows? Could be a cap. Could be a cap. Oh, Whoa! I mean, we know you guys run an innovative financial oh. system, but like, I, you know, that's a totally look, I, I, Ross. We've already kept you two minutes or three minutes longer than we said. I I noted at the beginning you said you have fifty nine people on your team, and I think that just 
for me, it is one question here. How many are ex-interns from Stanford University that we sent to you? We've struggled to get them in. They're, they're, they're going to more exciting opportunities in startups oh. and VCs. We, we have seeded uh, ideas, I think, now in close to 20 people, 20 wow. plus people. Yeah, um, it may cool. even be more by indirect project. So um, we've, we've had a great time with that internship and it's an alumni that keeps giving, Ash. So those yeah, people have good. gone into more exciting things and we continue to have a network there which is really, really powerful and they challenge us. So your students are really embraced wholeheartedly when they mm. come through. But Aww. I obviously don't pay enough to keep them. They're, they're, they've <laughs> got too much upside outside of infrastructure. Yeah, it's the great challenge, right? We were, before you came on, we were talking about how we need to pay everybody at pension funds a lot more money. Um, but anyway, <laughs> thank you, Ross, for coming on and sharing yeah, all that. Seriously. We really appreciate it. My pleasure, guys. And thanks for the opportunity. I hope it all goes well. Be safe. Yeah, you too. You Take too. care. I mean, like, what a great human, huh? He's so a great human, and like, and they figured it out. Like, there's the there's the blueprint right there. That's how you do infrastructure. But so Ross is like the best, right? So yeah. So that that's the role model, and we can at least hold him up and say, look, his answers on net zero are incredibly thoughtful. His thinking yep. about like how the public and private interact around infrastructure. Like you'll note that he's like the government gets the asset after 30 years, like everything is dialed in. And by the way, like it's not just the E that matters to him and the ESG. It is that governance and the social and the interface. And so anyway, I'm just like a huge Ross fan. And that's why we we literally at Stanford send interns to his team because we see him as, as the role model um, for, for future infrastructure investors. We want to like our students to act like his team. So pretty cool. That makes a heck of a, like, I think it was, it's really interesting how his organization kind of queers the boundary between, you know, public and private, right? Like they have this, um, you know, we're managing a government pool, but we take outside investments, but we, but we, you know, operate on a commercial. I mean, it's, it's, Really it's also that, by the way, is also the future. This like hybrid, <laughs> these hybrid organizations where long-term investors build deep expertise and then start to manage third-party capital as like part of scaling that expertise. You've seen that in like industry funds management. Um, you know, th- this is this is like probably where we're heading. Um, so anyway, pretty excited. I'm glad he came on and 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 like the thing you're talking about there is literally what we talked about in the last episode with Marcel. Right. Uh, yeah. Like where they, you know, they do a thing, it's good, and then they spin it out, and they do more of it for for <laughs> the asset owner community. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, what, like, does it get more beautiful than that? Uh, but <laughs> free money. I think it does. I think it does get more beautiful. <laughs> I think it can be the, the Dear Ashby segment, but and oh, also the beautiful. plug. We got a plug. We got to give. Them oh, plug. are we doing stars? What are we doing today? I, I mean, I, I would like five-star reviews. Um, I think that would... Let's ask for that. Let's ask for that. The five-star reviews. Maybe also phone a friend. Tell, you know, tell people about it. Yeah. You know, tell us, tell people about our cute little thing, weird thing that we do. Yeah. Help us to help you. Yeah. And also okay. visit the, visit the new and shiny freemoneypodcast.com. Um, oh my gosh. We do have a website. Yeah. We, like, we should we, be talking about that. We have a new <laughs> website. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we're like totally the best growth marketers in the history. <laughs> it's like, we're just growth hackers here, forgetting to yeah, mention yeah. we have a website. Yeah, ex- exactly. Yeah, we're, we're doing it all, 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 all of the good things. Uh, Wait until minutes. So if like, you made what? it through that half an hour of infrastructure <laughs> finance, you've now just learned <laughs> that we have a website. Maybe I'll return. I'll record something at the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, me. What's up? Who? What do people yeah, need to right, know? So, the first question. This is like this is a, this is really interesting to me. Um, large institutional investors have been investing directly in single-family homes mm. for like what seems like years. Um, and it, like, I wonder, like, you know, is this ethical? Given the, like we have tight housing markets all over the place, um, it's super hard for families to to buy a home, and you know, these investments are seem to be contributing to that. Yeah, it is a really good question. I I think like part of me wants 
to say that like a pension fund landlord is probably better than your current <laughs> landlord. You know, like in in theory, these are socially minded institutions that are taking a long term perspective, and you know That's, they're gonna in, in theory they're gonna keep you know they're gonna do the upgrade on the roof and. They're going to yeah, make sure yeah. that they don't they don't do the landlord thing and just paint the walls like extra thick when you leave. They're actually going to like improve anyway. They like no, like landlords are the worst. I, my my sister's yeah. landlord is, is like, what? You want me to take the bed bugs out of your house? What? No, no, no. no. <laughs> Sorry, I, I thought those were in the contract. They're in. That's they're part job, of the deal. Um, <laughs> um, so but yeah, no, but I, there is something that I've noticed a lot of um, co co-investment assistance happening. So there's a, a little company here in San Francisco called Landed, which helps teachers in high cost districts buy houses. Well, how do they do that? They find co-investment assistance. Who is providing that assistance? Endowments, foundations, ideally pension funds to co-invest with a teacher so they can afford to buy. I think in, in like there's little so structures cool. like that that get me yeah. super excited. That's about so cool helping people get onto the property ladder. Um, it, it's, you know, it's when they're, people are bidding up prices. And I think you see more of that bidding up happening when like, no offense to expats, but like when expats are trying to get money out of Russia or China <laughs> um, and they're, you know, no offense. I'm just going, I say no offense so that I can say whatever I want, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and speaking as an expat too, you can also invoke that. <laughs> but like, you know, there's a, there's a lot of, you know, empty houses in London and empty houses in New York and empty houses yep. in Vancouver as examples. <laughs> and I think that's probably worse than the pension funds going in and, you know, trying to be landlords. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, the, uh, okay. So the next question is, are, you know, arguably the company that we've trolled the most on, on the podcast so far, um, Johnson and Johnson. Just for the uh, name, right? Yeah. Just Johnson and Johnson. It's just crazy. Yeah. It's like, I, I mean, it's just the whole thing is like, you know, so what you have the toxic baby powder. <laughs> Exactly. The opioid. Did they have the opioids? <laughs> they did opioids. Yeah. Like, yeah, you know, um, and then they come out and do the, they lead the business roundtable statement. And now they do this. Like if I'm a, if I'm an institutional shareholder of this thing, like, should I be considering some kind of shareholder resolution? Like, I, you know, it's. And by how, this, you're talking about the vaccine giving people blood clots. Oh yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, did, we forgot to define this, but I assume yeah, yeah, yeah. this is the blood clot news. I mean, you know, but in relation to toxic baby powder, how bad is that really? <laughs> well, it's you know? one in a million. I mean, like, more, you know, I, I, to give Johnson and Johnson credit, as much as I don't want to, they had a, they got a vaccine out there that was pretty effective, yeah. and I know people that have had it. And it's something like one in a million, fine, yeah. get these bad blood clots. But like yeah. on the Twitters, somebody was saying like more people get blood clots from um, the pill, you know? Yeah, yeah, than, yeah, yeah. Birth control. <laughs> birth control, right. And obviously like more people die driving cars. And, yep. you know, so it's like, can we – I don't think they need a shareholder resolution. But <laughs> look, I – I hope that kind of this, the FDA puts it back out there so we can get people vaccinated so all these variants don't become like a real threat to everybody's lives. Yeah, I mean, so I just saw today to Pfizer was like, you're going to yep. need a booster shot in a year because all these variants. So, I mean, I get a flu shot every year already. So, you know, maybe it'll just knock me out for a week. For, in, I think in, we're in probably headed to that. I mean, yeah. you know, I don't want to be... The downer. 51 week year. You heard it here first. <laughs> oh, that's a yeah. free money. That's a free money call right there. That's a free money call. That's a prediction. Yeah. Write it down. It's 51 weeks a year. You're going to get a new week off. <laughs> exactly. Um, all right. So our last question is, this is like a, just a sad result. Uh, the National Bureau of Economic Research shared some findings, uh, you know, that purchases of nursing, nursing homes by private equity firms mm. are immediately associated with higher patient mortality, uh, higher fees, and a decline in like the patient's ability to move around the world and exist. I know uh, the study. Are we shocked? So, like, it, it's about as unsurprising as <laughs> as like like they would have this as one of the definitions of unsurprising in the dictionary. Okay, yeah. like yeah, this yeah, is yeah. unsurprising to me. <laughs> I think what is like 
more surprising is that something so unsurprising can exist. You know, like you're like, yeah, all of your priors are kind of like fulfilled so perfectly in this yeah. case. <laughs> yeah. Sorry to and laugh about something so tragic. Well, but it's it's like it's not like this is insider knowledge. I mean, it's like pretty Googleable that private equity firms have mm. like at least, you know, like not the greatest like moral character sometimes, um, you know, <laughs> this study in particular. So the, there's even a grosser thing than you mentioned, if you, if you actually read the paper. So yes, like 10% higher, uh, mortality than the average also 10% higher cost. So you're paying more to mm. potentially drop dead. Um, but the profit margins are obviously higher because of they and, and they're they've they're sneaky about how they do the fees. They sell the property, they lease it back at a higher cost. They do all these sneaky things, the private equity people. But here's the kicker: um, the, they put the patients, fifty um, percent more of the patients are on antipsychotic meds as opposed to therapy. Are you okay? Because the logic is that by sedating the patients instead of actually giving them behavioral therapy. They can reduce staff. And so that's freaking patients are sedated 50% more in private equity owned nursing homes. Wow. Wow. So the private equity solution to like somebody, like an elderly person who's having trouble mentally, is to just put them on Seroquel and knock them out. Yeah. Um, that's like, yeah. That's I, think really it, I think it's the same people at Johnson and Johnson. Yep. We are profoundly irresponsible with the use of those drugs as a society. <laughs> just really, <laughs> oh. it's just like super tragic. So when you like read the paper and you're like, "Oh my god, really?" Yeah, but yeah. Um, you know, if you, if if you're focusing, and but here's the thing: like now that we know this, like if you're actually trying to help the elderly, wouldn't you like ask the question: Is this place owned by private equity? You know, and if yeah. it is, you'd be like, "My parents aren't going there." And so over yeah. time, I would like to think, I don't want to call the market efficient, but like it costs more and the outcomes are worse. Why the hell are people going there? You I'll know? take the under on that correction itself. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to correct. I can't. I, yeah, it's not gonna, I, I really don't see that happening. The libertarian <laughs> impulse in me is, you're going to tell me that. we need regulation? Uh, yeah, I think that. that yeah. <laughs> okay, like, fine. I, we need regulation. I, <laughs> Uh, yes, <laughs> you win. Uh, you win this yeah. one, Sloan. <laughs> Finally, more regulations. Uh, well, Brutal. that's all we have for you today. Uh, this was another episode of the Free Money Podcast. We love and we all. do absolutely love you when you do five stars only. If you don't yeah, do yeah, five yeah, stars, yeah, we don't exactly. love you. <laughs> yeah, actually, if, if you don't leave us a five star review, there's a new finding um, that no one can love you. Yeah, uh, you're unlovable. You're unlovable. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's not. So you know, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't want to risk. I mean, people are risk takers on the show, but you know, who knows? Bye. Bye. Let me get rain on them.